Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Hewitt Tomlin. And before I get into today's guest, I'm just going to talk a little bit about our online payments portal. Um, The online payments portal, you've heard me say a little bit about it. And recently, I've been focused more on kind of talking to coaches and interviewing coaches who are experienced and successful at selling training programs online. We kind of got the sense that, you know, we built the tool, uh, but maybe it would be helpful if we taught people how to use it. And, you know, I get a lot of different sentiments out there from coaches. Do I want to sell my programs online? Um, do I even want to get into this? Do I want to see, uh, be seen as someone who markets themselves or sells themselves? And um, I think it's important to kind of break some of those things down because Jared Moon, for instance, who is wildly successful at running an online training business, you know, talks about, hey, if you're a coach who loves programming and you read about programming every day, that's great. Um, But if you're also not reading about how to create a newsletter or how to build a website, um, those are things that can be easily understood, just as understood as programming. But if you're not willing to do it, then you're really not giving yourself a chance of being successful at building an online training business. So if you're interested in that, um, I have a webinar with Jared. I've had him on my podcast and I'll be having other guests on as well who will be uh, talking about running a business online as a strength and conditioning coach. Today's guest is Matt Bruce. Um, We met Matt Bruce um, through Brute Strength, um, and that was a couple of years ago. Matt is now the CEO of Brute Strength, and at the same time, he is a high school strength and conditioning coach uh, for Catholic High School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Very successful high school, won a lot of championships. Matt's background is as a comprehensive strength coach, but specifically in Olympic weightlifting, and he's a big believer in the transfer uh, of Olympic weightlifting to the sports field, if done correctly. We get into that nuanced conversation. We don't we don't beat a dead horse or anything. Um, talk to Matt about a lot of things in this. He's got a good background uh, uh, coming up through Gail Hatch, who came up through another coach that we discuss. And um, it's a good history lesson in the history of strength and conditioning. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys it. I certainly enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, Matt Bruce. Welcome to the uh, podcast. How are you doing? Doing good, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. It's um, been a few years um, you know, that we've known each other now. And um, I think when we partnered with you and with Brute Strength, that was like the biggest, probably most exciting partnership Team Builder had done at that time and probably just, you know, might be still today. Um, so when we were first introduced to you, we were like, told her like Matt Bruce is like the guy in Olympic weightlifting and um but there's a lot more to you than that man you're you're a true strength and fishing coach you've, you've been coaching a lot of different things not just Olympic lifting is that right that's correct yeah so I grew up my my coach was a guy named Gail Hatch um, many people might know of him nowadays from the Hatch squat program I kind of went viral throughout the CrossFit CrossFit space. Uh, But my coach, who was an Olympic weightlifting coach and actually coached many national champions and many Olympians, he wore two hats. He was not only an Olympic weightlifting coach, but he was also a strength coach. Uh, So I was kind of like more or less brought up in not only the Olympic weightlifting community, but also the strength and conditioning community uh, throughout the, especially the early parts of my life and lifting career. So Gail Hatch, he, he was a strength and conditioning coach. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? 
Sure. Uh, yeah. So let's first take take a, a trip down the history lesson lane. So Gail Hatch learned from a guy named Alvin Roy. Alvin Roy is arguably the first ever strength coach for college ever. People say it's Boyd Epley, but and, and in some way, shape, or fashion, that is true. But uh, Alvin Roy used to coach the whole LSU football team during the 50s, but he wasn't an employee of LSU. The whole team would come down to his gym, which was about a mile or two from LSU, and Alvin would coach the whole LSU team uh, during the 50s. Um, and Alvin was the first, not only the first strength coach, realistically, in, in college football, and, and definitely the first strength coach on paper in, I mean, in, in professional football, uh, but Alvin was the first person to ever bring Olympic weightlifting into strength and conditioning. Alvin, before he even started working with LSU, was stationed in the army in Germany. And while he was in the army in Germany, he was watching the German team prepare for the Olympics for weightlifting. And he was like amazed by not only how skillful they were, but he would watch them do plyometrics and jumping exercises during their weight training. And he was mesmerized about how high these people can jump and how powerful he wa- they were. And he said to himself, why are we not doing these things and in, in incorporating them into strength and conditioning for sports? So, you know, arguably, not only was he the first strength coach, college, definitely professional, but the first strength coach to introduce Olympic weightlifting into strength and conditioning. Now, fast forward a little bit. Gail Hatch was one of his pupils. When Gail Hatch was in high school, he trained under Alvin as part of his strength conditioning uh, for basketball. Uh, little known fact, not many people know, but Gail Hatch went on to play college ball and then went on to play in the ABA. Back in the day, they had the ABA and the NBA. Coach Hatch played in the ABA. When the ABA folded into the NBA, Hatch actually went and played with the Globetrotters for a couple of years. Uh, now, he wasn't on the Globetrotters team. He was on the Washington Generals, the team that would always play them. Uh, and he did that for a couple of years. And then when Hatch came back to Baton Rouge, uh, he, was, he was always drawn to strength and conditioning from Alvin being his mentor. When he gets back to Baton Rouge, Alvin is accepting the job with the San Diego Chargers as the first ever strength coach in the NFL. And at that point, Alvin still had this gym and this, this following in this community. And he essentially kind of passed that gym and community down to Gail Hatch. Then Gail Hatch kind of take, took that during the, the 60s and 70s, kind of, uh, you know, molded that into strength and conditioning for athletes. But during the early, late 70s, early 80s, he fell in love with Olympic weightlifting and that portion of it. Hatch then began to study all the different systems, the Bulgarians, the Russians, the Chinese, every manual you can find out there to, to learn yeah, what other people were doing with Olympic weightlifting, not only for Olympic weightlifting, but also for sport. And then he then took that to, you know, arguably become one of the most successful uh, Olympic weightlifting coaches of that time from the 80s to the 2000s with, like I said, numerous people making world teams, Olympic teams during that, that, that stretch. Yeah. So if Gail Hatch and Alvin could, um, it, it, like, I'm not asking you to speak for them, but like if, if you had to interpret their best reason for why Olympic lifting transfers to sport performance, um, what, what would it be? And I only ask because like there is kind of an argument today about coaches wondering whether it's worth going through the trouble of teaching Olympic movements 
and whether there are some easier movements to teach that still have transferability to sport. What would Gail Hatch and, and, and Coach Alvin say about that? Um, so why did they incorporate it? First would be the pure explosion if they, they would see transfer over into those athletes. Um, people can argue that they can do other things to produce the quote-unquote same amount of force, uh, but I've yet to see any studies that show the, uh, the peak velocity and output that is under a, a certain load, right? Because it's one thing to be able to create a certain velocity doing a movement, right? You can create a very fast velocity doing a vertical jump with a very light weight, right? But to me, it's more important, can you do that same velocity with 300, 400 pounds? Is the difference between being explosive and being powerful, a skinny 130-pound guy can have a 42-inch vertical, but he's still a skinny 132-pound guy. Olympic weightlifting allows you to be that 185, 225-pound guy with the 42-inch vertical, you know, and, and won't be manhandled out on the field or on the court. So mm. my reference to that would be Olympic weightlifting is the most efficient way to apply force which is mass times acceleration mass. It has to be a certain amount of weight that you're lifting and acceleration, right? Uh, you produce, there's no other list that can produce as much force. Granted, there are lists that can produce as much acceleration and velocity, but there are no other lists out there that can produce the amount of force under the, under those prescribed loads in a safe manner. Now to answer that question of those coaches, it takes me too much time or it's dangerous. They're probably right. If they feel that it takes them too much time or it's dangerous, then they probably shouldn't be teaching it. They probably are not the right people to be teaching those lists. And, and it is probably dangerous for their athletes because they don't even feel comfortable teaching the movements. But if taught correctly and through the right uh, you know, patterns and, and uh, teaching progressions, it is extremely safe and the best way to produce force in athletes. Mm-hmm. So if a coach doesn't feel comfortable teaching Olympic lifts, he's making the right decision not to teach them, but he's probably also giving up an advantage, you would say. Agreed. And a lot of these coaches that feel uncomfortable, they still teach the Olympic lifts or, par- or parts of them. So they're still getting some work in, right? Yeah. A lot of times if they feel uncomfortable teaching a the clean, they'll teach a clean grip pull, right? Which at that point, they're getting partial of the movement, not the full thing. So they're getting some advantage, no doubt, right? Uh, but they're not getting the full advantage that you can get from the stretch reflex of, of receiving a clean. Vice versa, yeah. some, af- some coaches don't feel teaching a clean from the floor, right? Um, so then, therefore, they only teach hang cleans. I would rather you do hang cleans than no cleans, right? But, of course, mm-hmm. there, there's, there is more advantage to teaching these lifts from the floor. As Coach Hatch would ever, always say, power comes from the floor, right? But you probably don't do squats and bochi balls, right? We, I never, we never have one of those in our gym. Nor do we have jerk racks. <laughs> and nowadays, you see everybody have these jerk racks, uh, you know, our jerk blocks in the gym. Uh-huh. I didn't yeah. even know that was a thing until I had retired. Like uh, yeah. every jerk we ever did, we had to receive it either on the front or the back of our neck. And Coach Hatch would always say it's a full contact sport. And he would tell the football yeah. players that football players would complain about, oh, it hurts my neck or whatever. And Coach Ash would say, then, then you're not suited to even play football if you can't take contact, right? So I didn't even know yeah. what jerk blocks were until after I retired. 
Uh, it sounds like uh, the old school approach that I had when I was playing football, high school football in West Tennessee. To this day, like I don't wear wrist wraps or like knee wraps or or stuff like that because this is like high school football coach saw that in the weight room. He would tell us that's not real weightlifting. <laughs> right. We couldn't wear like any kind of influence. Just an old school guy. Coach Hatch was as old school as they get, man. Um, Coach Hatch, he walked around with a, a stick. It was a broomstick. But you, you would get whipped if you called it a stick. It was his staff, right? Because he was he was leading his flock. Uh, if you were out of position or if you were talking out of turn, you get, let's call it a polite tap on, on your leg or your buttocks. Uh, so there was no talking allowed in the weight room. There was no music allowed in the weight room. Uh, it was all everybody on their platforms, their heads down. And coach Hatch would be like a shark walking around the platform, just circling all day. And when you saw him, when he was like two platforms down from you, you knew you better be up and start chalking up because by the time he got to your platform to see your lift, you, you, your hands needed to be on the bar for the lift. He gave you his corrections and then he moved to the next person. And he would do this for four to five hours a day, nonstop. And again, no talking, no communication, eye of the storm, as Coach Ash would always say. Damn. Yeah, that's pretty old school. That's a little bit more old school than I had. But I also went to high school in the 2000s. That's awesome, man. So let's let's transition over to, to root strength and CrossFit for a little bit. Um, so, you know, you had this background in strength and conditioning and in Olympic lifting. And then you made your way into being involved with brute strength. You're one of the founders of the company and brute strength primarily operates in the, uh, in the CrossFit space. So how did it feel? Well, like how did you first find out about CrossFit? How did you first decide to start getting involved in CrossFit? Um, and then maybe you can talk about like the evolution of brute strength. So now you're, you're currently the CEO of it. So like, what's the deal now with CrossFit? What's the deal with the brute strength and CrossFit and so on? Yeah. So, uh, going back to that, that old school mentality of Coach Hatch, when I had retired from lifting, um, I kept showing up at the gym. And after about eight weeks, Coach Hatch pulled me aside and he was like, Matt, what are you still doing here? He's like, do you want to lift? And I was like, no, sir, I don't want to compete anymore. He said, then why are you still coming to the gym? And I was like, I, don't, I really don't know, Coach. I, I, I told him, I want to be a coach like you. I want to be a strength coach. And he said, Matt, I've taught you everything you need to, learn, to know. If you want to be a strength coach, you need to walk out that door and never come back into my gym and be a strength coach. He said, you being here, you're just waiting for me to die. And I looked at myself and I was like, damn, that's really kind of true. I was kind of just waiting to just be the heir apparent to take over the Gale Hatch program. And wow. uh, said, yeah, I went home and cried. As a 28-year-old man, I went home and cried. I had no clue. I went to the same gym at the same time every day for 17 years. And now I lost. I got kicked out of, out of my home. Um, so what did I do? I said, CrossFit. Those guys have free weights. I was like, let me see if I can go hop into a CrossFit gym. And maybe they'll give me a corner to go train some kids. Uh, uh -huh. I Googled CrossFit, found the closest one to my house, Red Stick CrossFit. I went and met with the owner. I was like, hey, man, is there any opportunity during off hours or something? I'll clean the gym or whatever. Let me train some kids on the side. And he's like, are you kidding me, man? He's like, I just leased this whole side of the building. I don't know what to do with it. He's like, as far as I'm concerned, it's yours. I was like, oh, no way. And so like, like a dog peeing on trees, I literally just started like any money I had throwing down platforms in every single part of this, this side of his gym because I knew if I put a platform there, he wasn't going to move it. 
because it's a heavy, that's a heavy ordeal, right? So I started putting platforms down everywhere, kind of made my mark there, you know, started with two platforms and moved to four, then built another three more and kind of built my, my program there, uh, mimicking exactly what Coach Hatch uh, was doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And during that time, of course, being at across the gym, you know, I kind of keep poking my head in the other side and, you know, got interested in what those guys were doing. And in the meantime, a guy, a guy named Michael Kazu <clears throat> was training at Coach Hatch's and then would come train at my gym. And he would tell me, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to go compete at the CrossFit Games. And I'm like, oh, CrossFit Games, that's kind of whatever that is. Cool. So I started kind of watching it, getting into it. It turns out Michael Kazu went and won two CrossFit Games as part of the team, Hacks Pack uh, Ute. And so then that got my wheels turning like, hold on. Like, I know this, this system called the Hatch System. Uh, it's being used in numerous colleges all throughout the nation and the world. I was like, why can't we apply the Hatch System to CrossFitters? I was like, I'm sure it'll be successful. So I approached Mike, and I was like, Mike, I, ha- I got this idea, man. Let's me and you do programming for CrossFitters online. I was like, I know the weightlifting portion. You obviously know the quote-unquote CrossFit portion. Like, let's team together and do this. And I remember him saying, Matt, who the hell would pay us for programming when they have their own gyms and their own coaches? I was like, no, man, you don't get it. We're experts. We're experts. Uh, and so that's how it started. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, I knew I had to get more involved in the CrossFit community. I started teaching the uh, CrossFit weightlifting courses. I taught them all throughout South America and Central America for a while, and then all throughout the Southeast for a while. Uh, and then our brand just kind of grew. And uh, Brute became known as a company with groups of experts. I never pretended to be a CrossFit coach. And to this day, I don't pretend to be a CrossFit coach. I am a strength mm-hmm. coach. I understand strength and conditioning and weightlifting particularly. We went and hired the best gymnastics coach in the nation that we felt uh, for CrossFit. We hired the best endurance coach, Chris Henshaw, uh, brought on some of the best doctors on staff. I know you interviewed Sean Pastouche. Uh, and as a team of experts, that became our brand. Instead of one guy being a jack of all trades trying to teach mm-hmm. CrossFit, we had a group of experts that I would only, you know, focus on the weightlifting portion. Gymnastics would focus on gymnastics, and that's where we kind of started and evolved to. And to this day, we're still operating and, and training some of the most elite CrossFitters in the world, uh, such as Kara uh, Saunders, uh, Brooke Ince, Allison Scuds. Um, and whatnot. Yeah, you've got a huge stable of, of good athletes, but it's not like a, a merchandise sponsorship deal where you send them some clothes or you know cans of energy drink, and and then they're they're your athlete. They're enrolled in your program. They they, they get coached by you, and that's that's pretty cool. That that's more important, right? And we actually don't require our athletes to even post about us. Um, we want them to post about us because they feel that we're giving them what they, they want and deserve. Uh, so yeah, we don't even have any kind of agreement that they have to post about it. Yes. Of course we, we coach them, uh, for free, but it's not one of these sponsorship deals, like where they, they feel obligated to post about us. Like, you know, we give them a service and they appreciate the service. Yeah. So, you know, CrossFit's had its journey, you know, like a lot of brands, uh, it's maybe a little bit more controversial or has been historically, um, it, it probably saw a little bit more success in the past than it, it does today, but 
I think the new leadership's encouraging. People are excited about the new direction. Would you be able to offer your analysis of like the, the CrossFit journey, kind of like how it came up in popularity and then um, some of the challenges that it faced over the course of the last couple of years? Yeah. So with Brute Strength, we got in, I guess you can call quote unquote early into the game. Uh, we got in at in 2013 and started coaching. Uh, we started doing online programming before really anybody even knew the words online programming. And that's when we reached out to y'all because I literally Googled online programming, strength and conditioning. I actually, yeah, I think I Googled online strength and conditioning programming and y'all were one of like two or three people doing it outside of people just yeah. sending Google docs. And I was like, yeah. and that's when I contacted y'all. Uh, so we were one of the first to the game. And during that 2013, the 2017 period, CrossFit was, you know, growing incredibly fast. Right. Uh, and then, uh, things kind of started changing, uh, slowly and then more abruptly. The CEO at the time, or not the CEO, the owner and founder, Greg Glassman, he decided that the CrossFit games idea, uh, gave a bad image to the idea of CrossFit. Greg's idea of the company was to bring uh, better health and cure disease. And he felt like showing the CrossFit games on TV and having these monsters doing these handstand push-ups and crazy things, people at home would see that and be like, oh, no, I don't want – that's what they do over at that place over there? I don't want to do that, right? And he felt he gave a bad image, and rightfully so, like it, 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 if, if that's the image that you're portraying. So instead of trying to use that marketing arm of the CrossFit Games and, and manipulating it to where the audience could see that that's not the everyday CrossFitter. The everyday CrossFitter is the one going there with, for health reasons, and these are just the elite of the elite. Instead of that, do you I think, um, do you think it should have been like when you go to like a hockey game and then uh, in between periods they let the little kids go and play hockey for like one minute? They're like, should they put some amateur CrossFitters out there in between the events? And be like, this is what actually is the real CrossFit that you could be doing. No, only because the people who were following CrossFit, I guess uh, the people who were there knew that. I think they they would need to do better just with the commercials and and yeah, the time periods mm -hmm. in between it, uh, you know, on ESPN you know, showing these periods of it's not about these guys. It's more about your health. Right. And yeah. we've, you yeah. know, showing peak before and after pictures and, uh, people talking about how it's, it, you know, uh, not cured to diabetes, but like, you know, brought their, their risk level down tremendously, uh, should have yeah. been the image they, they went with instead of just shutting it down. He essentially was like, uh, yeah. you know, he, he quit caring about it and essentially kind of wanted to give up with that side, but unfortunately he was under contract to Reebok and a couple other things that he had to technically keep it running. Um, mm -hmm. But in the last year, we've seen him step down. Another guy, Eric Rosa has taken over and he's bringing back that old, that old feeling of CrossFit. He's bringing back that competition side, but he also understands how to utilize that idea and the fame of CrossFit to, to reach the masses and get more people into the gyms. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing for Brute because um, you do high-level elite athletes. Um, one last question about Brute, but, um, you know, sometimes I talk to the NBA coaches, you know, uh, MLB coaches, NFL, and it seems like when an athlete becomes that elite, um, it's less about telling the athlete what to do and more like working with them on what to do. You know, what can I kind of get this thing to buy into? Um, now, I know CrossFitters are not – 
you know, at the same status as NFL athletes, but it's very competitive I and mean, they're professionals and they're elite athletes. So when you work with elite athletes in CrossFit, is it a similar dynamic or are these guys and girls like super workhorses and run through brick walls for you? So they are definitely workhorses and will run through a brick wall for us. But mm-hmm. going back on that, it's with any sport, it's about gaining trust, right? And, and I talk about this a lot. There is no perfect program. There is no perfect template. Uh, one group can be su- super successful on one template. And then a completely separate, different template, people can be equally as successful. So it's less about the numbers and more about the trust. An athlete, a, a coach can have the perfect program, but if they don't have the buy-in from the athlete, you might as well throw it away. But a coach could have one of the worst programs in the world, but if he's got 100% buy-in from the athlete, they'll probably still be successful. So when it comes to a very high level, it's about that buy-in. So it's more about being, you know, the type of coach you are, you know, whether it's that friend coach or that stern coach um, and really getting the athlete to buy in hundred percent. It's less about how much they're working, but that the athlete knows if I do these things that my coach tells me, I will win the CrossFit games or I will do as best as I can do. So it's less about the, you know, manipulating the numbers and more about them giving their undivided love and and attention to you as a coach. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to an elite level, like NFL, it's like, like one of my good friends, Scott Cochran would say, you know, uh, they're giving me Ferraris. I'm just putting spinners on them bitches, right? Mm -hmm. You're already getting these elite of the elite. You're just trying to fine tune, make things a little bit shinier and most importantly, not letting these guys get hurt. Yeah. The, the first thing that comes to mind is Trent Richardson who played running back for Alabama. Uh, he came in Alabama as a freshman and he, that senior year in high school, he had won first place in the power clean event in the state of Florida, which is a competitive state. And he also won the, the state title in the hundred meter dash in Florida you know, that is just crazy for a high school kid. And Scott, Scott's exactly right. You know, these guys, I just have to get them largely better. You know, there's probably a risk reward analysis at that point, right? More than it is. It's really strong and really fast right now. Right. And I'm actually working with a couple of coaches, one Kurt Hester out in Louisiana tech to, to mm-hmm. what, what is the maximum amount of weight uh, a certain position would have to, to lift, let's say a running back, what would be the most a running back would need to clean realistically? You know, probably like 365 to 385. There's no reason for me to keep trying to get him to clean 400 when there's, you know, when mm-hmm. I could be focusing on other things. Vice versa, if somebody's running like a, you know, a 425 I don't need to be sitting there working on his speed drills and trying to get him that point something faster, right? So yeah. it, it really comes down to a chart of like, you know, what is the weaknesses you have to approach and work on? That's the spinners on a Ferrari, right? So if I get a guy, say I'm an NFL coach, I get a guy that's cleaning 400 and running like a, you know, 4340, then I'm not having to do too much with them. I'm maintaining what they got, 
but I'm, I'm making little tweaks and most importantly, keeping those guys healthy to be out there instead of yeah. pounding them on the platform and, and making them, you know, squat all these weights and stuff like that. Because again, you're just fine tuning these racehorses. Yeah. Hey, I'm familiar with coach Hester and, um, and I, I love when he talks about those metrics where he basically creates a definition of a profile of what it takes to go to the NFL at a certain position. So he can take his existing guys and say, this is how you line up against the, 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 the prototype that is successful in the NFL. And I think it's probably helpful for the athletes to see where they're good, where they come up short. They recognize their strength they recognize their weaknesses. Uh, instead of just being, you know, arbitrarily told, oh, we'll just get better, you know, <laughs> just to show up and do the work. I mean, and, and, it, and it also gives you a, uh, an objective uh, way to like show athletes like, Hey, you want to know why you're not starting or, you know, want to know why you're not getting reps. Let's see your numbers compared to these guys. Hey, look at all the starters right now. They're all cleaning over 300. They're all running, you know, sub four, five forties, you know, like it's, it's a lot easier to, to give that guy these, these parameters to shoot for. To be like, hey, if you can start cleaning over 300, you probably have a better chance of being out on that field, right? So it gives them mm-hmm. more hope, you know, working out in the rate room and these parameters, like you said, with Kurt Hester to like uh, give them something to shoot for, even from like a high school standpoint. Yeah. So you're, you're also good friends with strength um, edition coaches at LSU, right? That's probably where right. you have a lot of history and background. Tommy Moffat is obviously has been a head strength coach there for a long time. Um, he's been there a long time for an SEC school. Um, I'm actually, uh, I'm, his, his son uh, goes to the school, one of his sons, this is his last son, uh, Brady goes to the school where I coach at now. So I'm actually coaching his oh, son. Okay. Me and Coach Moffitt yes. talk uh, pretty regularly, and it's mostly about his son's training, and, and I get yeah. advice on, on my coaching. Yeah, Coach Moffitt is, is born and raised in West Tennessee, right. just like I am. And once he found out about me, I was, I was in. I was in his circle, <laughs> you know, he's, you like that. Um, he talked a little bit about what's given Coach Moffat such longevity at LSU. I mean, there's been coaching changes and stuff. Um, and, you know, he's, he's still around. I know they've, they've won quite a bit as well, but they've also had some, some seasons where they haven't won, but he's still there. So what is it about Coach Moffat that, that, you know, has been in that place? One of the most amazing things, and I want to say this has never happened and may never happen, I want to say he's the first strength coach ever to win three separate national championships under three separate head coaches. Uh, There's no way this happened ever. Right, because you have to think he won under um, Les Miles, Nick Saban, and Coach Ogeron. Right. I don't think that's ever happened. So that, that right yeah, there proves the longevity, right? Uh, he's been in this position and he is the one single factor that has been there the whole time uh, and basically secured his spot for the rest of his life, right? After you yeah. win three national titles under three different coaches and you're the only staple that is there, right? Um, and, and let's be clear, I mean, like Bobby Bowden and, and Coach Paterno, like those guys have longevity, but they're head coaches. You never really see that at the strength and condition level. So I think it's specifically unique for him in his position. 100%. And what contributed to that? Uh, first and foremost is his passion. He is in extremely passionate for his job. There's not a day I, I walk in that weight room where he is not 
pounding those platforms like Coach Hatch says. He's fired up every group, every day, every set, every rep. A lot of a lot of the same things that Coach Hatch harps on. Every set, every rep. You should never pass an athlete and not tell him anything. There's always a correction you can give some kind of athlete, right? And that that was Moffitt's mentality. So Moffitt has always been in the eye of the storm. If you ever see him on the sidelines, he's up there jumping and screaming because he's extremely passionate for what he does. With that also being said, he's also adaptable. He's not one of these old school coaches that has basically, you know, falls into a pattern and just stays with that pattern. Uh, he didn't constant- that system and just do that for three decades, I'm sure. Exactly. Constantly adapting, constantly studying, uh, you know, arguably one of the, the, the first people to, to start looking in this velocity-based training. Uh, they're using the perch system now over there. And like, like you had said, instead of just starting with one system and just only holding to that, he's consistently adapted, consistently tried to learn uh, and, and apply these, these tactics and new methods. And then also, he has to be able to adapt based off of the, what the head coach tells him. He sits down with the head coach every year and – the head coach has to say, hey, these, this is the type of offense we need to start running this year, right? He has to then change the, those training protocols based off of what that head coach brings them. If they need to be more, more conditioning, yeah, more conditioning, yeah, exactly, or more powerful, more run-style uh, offense, he has to make adjustments to that. He, he could simply say, nah, coach, like, you know. I'm the one, yeah, like, I, we, I'm the one who won three national championships. Like, I know what I'm doing. No, he's, he's also humble enough to know, like, he is a strength coach and he listens to what the head coach wants and makes adaptations for that. Yeah, he's probably a good model for someone that has his principles built over time, but also is malleable enough to work with. Obviously, he's malleable enough to work with new coaches, you know, new head coaches um, and give and take. So that, that's a conversation that takes place is like balancing you know, your, your personal preferences that's rooted in principles and science, but also working with a sports coach that, you know, has their own perspective. So let's shift it to you. And, and, and now what you do, which is head strength and conditioning coach at Catholic high school, is that that's in Baton Rouge as well? Correct. Yep. So Catholic high school is a, the highest classification, highest division uh, of sports here in our state. Um, I took the head strength conditioning role here in May and uh, this is my alma mater. Um, I've always wanted to come back and give back to the school. And they gave me the perfect opportunity to be able to be the strength coach, but also be able to run uh, brute uh, also. So able to do two positions at once. Uh, so, yeah, started in May. And so far, we've had the most successful fall we've ever had. We swept the state championship in all fall sports. We won state championship in cross country. We won state championship in swimming. And we also just won the state championship in football. Uh, so great feeling there. Uh, I can't take all the credit by any means. Uh, I walked into a great culture. And one of the hardest jobs as a strength coach is creating that culture, creating that buy-in that we talked about before. I walked in and the culture was already here. The buy-in was already here. I, like mm-hmm. Scott Cochran, just had to make some tweaks uh, to make it a little bit better, right? And and just keep the athletes buying in. Uh, so I arguably love my position here. Um, I work in the morning from 5.30 a.m. to 8 a.m. I have groups. Then I'm completely free from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then I again work from 2 p.m. till about 6 p.m. with groups. 
wow, that's a great schedule. I think it leaves you a good chunk of time to work on, on fruit and stuff like that. Exactly. And then as we were discussing uh, before, uh, we have a brand new $1.5 million weight room uh, that will be opened in two weeks. And part of my recruitment coming here was uh, for the last two years, they were like, Matt, if you could envision your perfect weight room, what would it look like? And so I was on the panel that basically built this weight room. Uh, And then after the plans were done, it was more like, Matt, what is it going to take to get you here to coach? Well, you built your own weight room. Uh, you know, you got everything you wanted. You know, what's it going to take to get you here? And I was like, you know what? That's a great point. Brand new weight room, like my alma mater. Like I want to give back. So uh, super excited. In two weeks, we'll have a brand new weight room. And as you can imagine what this weight room looks like, there's not a single machine. The only thing that we have in there is racks, barbells, bumper plates, and then along the walls, we have, of course, dumbbells, kettlebells, uh, wall balls, medicine balls, and, and bands. Um, but yeah, no machines, no nothing like that. We do have a lot of really cool stuff that attaches to the rigs so that we can do GHDs yeah. and stuff like that within the rig. But no yeah. clunky equipment, just literally a huge building with built-in platforms throughout it. Damn. Who's, your, who's the manufacturer? Who's doing the racks? Uh, true athletics. So a, a great friend of mine, Buster Bourgeois and Jason Poeth. Jason is actually a strength coach at university of Alabama. Uh, they have a company uh-huh. called true athletics, T R U athletics. Uh, and they, yeah, they outfitted the whole thing so from rigs to barbells, to bumpers, to collars, to, uh, you name it. Wow. Sweet. Man. Um, I mean, that's a great situation. $1.5 million weight room. Your alma mater in your hometown, um, you guys are winning a lot. Holy crap! So, Matt, like when you came in, did you get immediate buy in from the sports coaches as well? Do are all the sports coaches comfortable with all teams training in the weight room? 100%. Um, for the most part, I had been wow. kind of consulting for the last five or six years here anyway, um, kind of helping lead the teams in directions of where they should be. And I would appear here, you know, every couple months and, and help them out teaching the lifts. Uh, and it was a pretty easy, it was a blessing in this, uh, for a lot of these coaches because they were essentially running a similar program of mine, but it was the head mm-hmm. basketball coach implementing it, or it was the head mm-hmm. baseball coach implementing it in the weight room. And of course they don't yeah. feel comfortable teaching a power clean or a snatch and you know, it's, it's a lot yeah, more difficult. Does. You, you can be handed the best program in the world, but coaching is a totally different exactly. story. I'm sure a lot of them So the buy-in was already there. They were already winning before I got here, right? And so now yeah. they know that the program didn't drastically change. Uh, the program, you know, arguably stayed very similar. And then they had the guy writing the programs now administering it. Gotcha. Beautiful, man. That's a great, it's a great situation. Yeah. I'm sure it helps that you had some... I mean, you have a, a long history around the school, being around town. Um, you just weren't coming in from out of town, coming in and, you know, talking to old school coaches who think weightlifting makes you slow. So right. it sounds like a really good situation. That's really fantastic. Right. And you also have gotten involved with the NHSSCA at the state level in Louisiana. Um, a lot of folks listening to this podcast know, you know what that is. We are an original sponsor. Love that organization support it till the end what has your experience been like uh getting involved with the the louisiana chapter yeah incredible um i was part of their family day uh about two a month or so ago um Mm -hmm. gave a talk a virtual talk 
Um, and then I'll, I'm now invited to go speak at the regional uh, conference, which will be in Dallas, Texas in May. Uh, so right. very excited about that. I really like how engaged everybody is, uh, from our regional director to our state director. Uh, they're looking for ways to get high school strength and conditioning known and appreciated more. And I respect that tremendously because I agree, like in the state of Louisiana, we might have two or three strength coaches that are dedicated strength coaches that don't have to teach a history class or teach a PE class or something like that, that are dedicated strength coaches. And I want to bring more awareness to this position, not in our state and regional level, that it's it's an accredited position. Look at, look at uh, college level. Arguably the strength coach spends more time with the athletes than the normal coach does. And especially in college athletics, it has to be that way. Right. So, um, it, it's, it's slowly being a trickle down effect. Strength conditioning is now extremely respected on the college level. Right. And we're going to start seeing that trickle down to the high school level. Uh, and I want to be part of that, that fix. I want to be part of, of that trickle down and having organizations like the national high school strength and conditioning coaches association is the pathway in order to get there. Yeah. Well, I can personally attest to that. I know a lot of college strength coaches through my line of work. I've had multiple conversations in the past two weeks with coaches that are just done with college and want to move to high school. I think at some point they just see that that hours are more accommodating. You know, you kind of get a, a level of fulfillment where you can work with athletes directly instead of worrying about administrators and sports coaches and kind of bureaucracy that you get in college. And um, the respect, I mean, like wearing a big college logo is like the thing to do. And it still is to some degree, but I think coaches are starting to see past that. Like, it doesn't matter if you, if you work at a college, if you work a hundred hours a week, you feel like you're underpaid and a sports coach can tell you what to do at any moment. Maybe high school is not so bad after all. I had a, a coach take a job in Florida and, you know, when he started having kids, and he, he went and coached at a K-12 school. He was like, you know, I get to see my kids in the hallway and like give them a hug and a kiss every day. When I work for Exos, I just would never see them. And he was like, I wouldn't trade this for the world and I'd get paid more. It, when someone says that, you think, wow, this is just a no-brainer. You know? Right. And that's, that's the biggest reason for me is family. Uh, you don't have to go through the coaching shuffle every year. Everybody knows this period now is yeah. starting to end. Uh, the last four weeks is called the coaching shuffle in, in college athletics. Uh, you don't know if your job's secure. You could one day be in one city, and then next day you're looking for a job scrambling to pick up your family and move them to another place in the country. And mm-hmm. the other thing is the job security. Like, you could be the best strength coach in the United States in the world, but if you don't have good leadership from a head coach, you're, you're, if that head coach fails – you're considered part of that organization and you're can too. So no matter how good you are, how much time you spent with those kids and developing them and really implementing the most badass program there is, you can be gone because your head coach got canned. And yeah. in high school, you don't have that, right? The, your security is so much better. You don't have to pick up and leave. You don't have the middle of the year shuffle. Uh, to me, it's a lot more rewarding being more of a mentor to these kids uh, mm-hmm. going through a lot of the problems you have to like kind of growing up, you know, as an adolescent going into puberty. Um, I get more out of that than I do coaching them athletically, uh, being a mentor to them, knowing that they can. The reality is most of your kids 
oh, probably are not going to play in college. You're building skills with them. You've realized the biggest impact I can have is to help these kids bring some skills into the real world, into whatever else they do. Um, the weight room is a great place for doing that. Um, this is the last question, and then I'll, I'll let you go for good. Um, but I'm just curious about your opinion on this. You know, I, I see, especially at the college and pro level, when a team is plagued by injuries, they tend to scapegoat the strength coach. Um, like that's that's like the oldest trick in the book, right? For a front office, um, there's some really good strength coaches in the NFL now that have had some teams that just had a lot of injuries. Um, do you still think that uh, scapegoating strength coaches is going to be like a, a, a move, a go-to solution for some people? Do you think we're kind of moving past that as an industry? <clears throat> I think it'll unfortunately kind of be there because here's the thing. When a head coach's job's on the line, he's getting pressured from the athletic director. He knows he's on the chopping block. What's his first thing to do? He looks down his he ladder. Changes. Yep, yeah, he makes changes. So one of those sometimes is the strength coach. One of those is the offensive coordinator, defense coordinator. Yeah. And typically he might make those changes and that's his last year. You know, he's just buying himself one more year. And that's unfortunate yeah. that they use them as scapegoats for that. On the outside of that, I think some of the responsibility does lie with the strength coach. Um, and a lot of it could be with how they're warming up and how do they progress through the year. But mm -hmm. I think that's something that shouldn't be talked to or put on just on, on a one instant kind of thing. It shouldn't be like, okay, you, we had this one bad year. It's all your fault. Like the coach should have been communicating with him the whole time. And at that, if at that point it got too late and, and you're, you're putting the chopping block on them at that instant, then it's too late. Right. Here at my school, I have great communication with the coaches and with the athletic trainers. If, if we, we see two people pull a hamstring in one game, we address it immediately there and talk about, hey, what could we have done differently? Not at the end of the year saying we had all these problems and it's your fault. Um, so I think if there's really good communication between the head coach uh, and everybody feels like they have a voice. On a college level, not many people feel like they have a voice. People see the head coach as the, you know, whatever he says goes kind of thing, and you have to follow suit. Again, in high school, I think you see more of the uh, better communication and working better. Uh, so like here, like I said, we have a great relationship with my head coach, especially athletic trainers, and we work through it. We talk about, okay, how can we change the warm-ups a little bit better? What can we maybe do better with hydration going into this game, uh, you know, and try to try to tackle it on an acute level instead of waiting until it blows up at the end of the year. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so it seems like it's going to be a mainstay, but probably changing for the better a little bit. Agreed, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think as, as athletic trainer, I think the biggest part of this is athletic trainers and strength coaches working together. They can't be seen as two different entities um, because at that point, athletic trainers will try to start doing too much strength and conditioning. Strength coaches will try to start doing too much athletic training uh, if they can't communicate and talk together through everything. Uh, I think it needs to start there. They become a unified front. It's no longer seen as two different departments. It's seen as one department. Athletic trainers and strength and conditioning staff are one. And then as a one voice, it's not necessarily on the strength coach for doing it wrong, right? It was a community decision between the strength coach and the athletic trainers that this was the best decision for us to do going with these athletes and they got hurt because of both of us, you know? Yeah. It's great, man. Great answer. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here. 
And uh, before I do, uh, I'll let people know Brute Strength is a great resource. Um, you guys do an awesome newsletter. You guys put out great content. It's a great follow. Um, but to follow you, I can post your stuff in the, the show notes. Like Bruce Barbell is your Instagram tag. Correct. And um, where else Where else would people go? Yeah, uh, just those two main ones, Brute.Strength on Instagram and Bruce Barbell is more of my personal account. Uh, I'll be posting a lot mm-hmm. more uh, once this new weight room is done uh, and we'll really start uh, pumping out a lot more content in, in the near future uh, and some exciting news coming up in the next uh, month or so. So be on the lookout. Okay, exciting. I don't even know what that is, so I'm going to look out for that. <laughs> Great. All right, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.